Once the kingdom is united under David, the twelve tribes gather together to conquer the enemies of God for a complete dominion conquest, for the glory of God and for the kingdom of his honor. This is the 17th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from the entire chapter, chapter 8, 2 Samuel and chapter 8, the inspiration of God, the prophet showing us David's conquest for the kingdom as he defeats Philistia, Moab, Zobah, Syria, and Edom. The word of God says this, And after this, it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methamah out of the hand of the Philistines, and he smote Moab and measured them with a lion, casting them to the ground. Even with two lines measured he to put to death, and with one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. David smote also Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates. And David took from him a thousand chariots and seven hundred horsemen and twenty thousand footmen. And David hocked all the chariot horses, but reserved of them for an hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to succor Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David slew of the Syrians two and twenty thousand men. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts. And the Lord preserved David with us wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem and from Betha and from Berothia, cities of Hadadezer. King David took exceeding much brass. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the hosts of Hadadezer, then Toi sent Joram, his son, unto King David to salute him and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and smitten him. For Hadadezer had wars with Toi. And Joram brought with him vessels of silver and vessels of gold and vessels of brass, which also King David did dedicate unto the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated of all nations which he subdued, of Syria and of Moab and of the children of Ammon and of the Philistines, and of Amalek, and of the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David got him a name when he returned from smiting of the Syrians in the Valley of Salt, being 18,000 men. And he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom put he garrisons. And all they of Edom became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David with us wherever he went. And David reigned over all Israel. And David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the host. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahalud, was recorder. And Zadak, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abathar, were the priests. And Syria was the scribe. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherodites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief rulers. Paul, counseling the elder at Ephesus, Timothy, 1 Timothy and chapter 3, two verses only this morning, 14 and 15. By inspiration of God, the Apostle Paul counsels 
Timothy in this way. These things write I unto you, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou ought to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel once again, the grace of God given to us this day. Now, having been established as the king of the united twelve tribes of God's heritage, Israel, David immediately takes the battle to God's enemies. He doesn't wait. He doesn't say, let me build myself a house. Let me get comfortable in my new office. Now that we have the united Israel, I'm just going to sit back and enjoy what I have by God's grace. No, no, no. He takes the battle immediately to God's enemies in order to ensure complete and comprehensive sovereignty over the region for the glory of God. So he smites the Philistines and subdues them. And then he takes Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. Once he does that, he doesn't sit back and say, what a wonderful creature I am and how great a conquest have I had. No, he then smites Moab and he measures them with a line Casting them down to the ground, even with two lines, he put to death, and with one full line he keeps alive, and so the Moabites become David's servants and bring him gifts. You would think after two of the conquests, then David would say, well, look at what I've done. No, he continues. He's got the momentum. David then smites Hadadiza, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah because he wanted to recover his border at the river Euphrates. Now his plan for dominion was a move to fulfill the covenant mandate which had been initially given in the Garden of Eden and then, of course, as David would remember, it was given then to Joshua during Israel's entrance into Canaan. And one could not help but see the the incredible strategy behind David's warfare tactics. Notice how he first goes after the Philistines, because the Philistines, as you remember, were Israel's principal arch enemies from the very beginning. Perhaps it was a personal vendetta. He had destroyed their champion, Goliath, and now he's going to destroy them totally, now that he is the king, under a united Israel. Because it's the unification of Israel that's giving him this power and this strength by the grace of God. So he goes after the Philistines first. Then, without so much as a resting period, he takes from them the bride of the Philistines. Now, the word here, methegama, is actually translated as the bride of Amma. So David is taking the bride of Amma from them. Now, whether this was a woman, which I don't believe it was, It was, however, a treasured thing. Perhaps, maybe one of the women, maybe one of the brides of the of the principal men, but it was a treasured thing. So this is a treasured icon or a treasured image. Obviously, this thing was very special to the Philistines, a treasured thing from the Philistines, and to take that was a great reproach upon them. Not only was their defeat a reproach, but to take this from them was a added insult to injury. 
And in addition to defeating the Philistines, David is humiliating them further by taking them, by taking from them this bride in order to deepen their distress. So you think about this. David is showing no mercy, but rather he seeks to do as much damage as possible, both militarily and psychologically as he can. Next, he takes the battle to the Moabites. But here his tactics are different. After defeating the Moabites, who are actually distant relatives to David through Abraham and Lot, he executes, if you read this very carefully, he divides this tribe into three units. Well, actually into two units, a one-third, one-third, and one-third. But he takes two-thirds and puts them together, and one-third he separates. So he executes then the two-thirds, but he shows mercy to the one-third of the tribe so as not to eliminate their witness from the face of the earth. Remember, they were relatives. So he takes two-thirds and executes them. Then he takes one-third and makes them his servants. Upon the one-third, he shows mercy. But upon the remaining two-thirds, he destroys taking the one-third for himself. Now the question is this, why this one-third, two-third dichotomy? Is there a gospel message in this act of mercy and justice? And I believe there is. I believe that the entire scripture speaks to us of something or another that has some salvation significance. Especially in this case, when God uses numbers, he's making a statement with important significance. Now it seems as if the Bible speaks of the one-third as a reference to the elect of God. In other words, those separated by Christ, as in the account of David sparing the one-third of the Moabites and making them his servants. Interestingly enough, if you read the covenant stipulation of Deuteronomy in chapter 28, that entire chapter is structured in one-third blessing, two-thirds condemnation. So there's even there, in the scripture itself, a one-third, two-third dichotomy. The language that is used here speaks of smiting them to the ground. This, this two-thirds are going to be smitten to the ground. That's the literal Hebrew in an act of great humiliation, almost in the same way, if you think about this number thing, almost in the same way as the serpent, the great dragon, is cast to the ground in Revelation 12 and the serpent cast to the ground in Genesis 3. But in Revelation 12... We see the tail of the dragon, or the word here, dragon, but it's actually the word serpent, casting one-third of the stars of heaven to the ground. Notice Revelation 12, 3 and following. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns. Obviously, there's some majesty here. Seven heads and ten horns, and then crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the ground, even smiting them, if you will, to the ground. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Now I believe that this great red serpent-type dragon is a description of Adam as the prince of the earth, note the crowns upon his head, and yet no longer the head but the tail, as per Deuteronomy chapter 28, once you 
defile the law of God, once you disobey the law of God, once you rebel against the law of God, you are no longer the head as Adam was, but then become the tail. And since the elect were in the loins of Adam, in the genetical makeup of Adam, when he fell, so did all of God's chosen one-third fall with him, symbolized by the stars. Stars are always a symbolic representation of the believers. And so when Adam sinned, the elect of God in Adam, symbolized by the one-third of the stars, were cast down to the ground, but would be redeemed as the one-third of the Moabites were redeemed by David to become the bondservants of Christ typified by David. So once the one-third of the Moabites received mercy, the scripture says that they brought gifts to David. And that's exactly what the redeemed of the Lord do. That exactly is what the one-third, the redeemed of the Lord do. They bring gifts to Christ. And that is exactly what the Magi did at the Incarnation. They brought to the Lord God gifts in the same way as the Levites and the people of Israel were commanded to do. Notice Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So right there with David's actions against the Moabites, we have the gospel. David then sets his sights on the king of Zobah. Now this targeting of this particular king is also significant. In other words, he's targeting the king. We don't read that he's just going after the entire tribe, he's making a particular point to target the king. In other words, cut off the head of the snake and the snake dies. Get rid of the leadership and the snake dies. This was a crafty move. Not only because David is targeting the king for destruction, but he is seeking to enlarge his territory at the river Euphrates. So after defeating the king, David confiscates his weapons of war. He doesn't just destroy them. He doesn't just defeat them. He doesn't just destroy the king. He then confiscates his weapons of war. Another brilliant strategy. Notice verse 4. And David took from him a thousand chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 footmen. So he takes to himself the weapons of warfare. And then he destroys their ability to fight another day. Notice, he hocks the horses. He hocks the chariot horses. He cuts their tendons so they cannot pull the chariots any longer. But he kept for himself a hundred. A brilliant strategy. He's amassing to himself power, and at the same time, he's destroying the power of the enemy. David takes control of the offensive weaponry of the wicked, destroying some while retaining others for himself. And there's a lesson there for us as well. We are, as we go forth with the gospel, we are to take control of the certain institutions that are used to destroy the testimony of Christ, such as the media, the internet, government positions, educational institutions, medical institutions, legal professions, and you name it. We're to go there and take the power from the wicked and use it for the glory of God. The gospel plan, as David is showing us, is to be total and comprehensive. And while we are to take control of certain institutions, there are those that need to be utterly destroyed. For instance, 
what institution should be destroyed in the United States of America? Well, maybe the central banking system would be a good one where to start. But what about the IRS, the CIA, the FBI, the WHO, the EPA, and so many other institutions that are not biblically authorized to exist? But we tolerate those things, thinking that, well, that's the way things are and that's the way things should be. No, just because something is doesn't mean it ought to be. Now, verse 5 shows just how committed David was to his strategy. He doesn't let any other entity assist those that he had conquered. In fact, he regards any outside assistance for the enemies as his enemy. And he then kills 20,000 of them, making the remainder his servants, compelling them to bring gifts as well. We see this in verses 5 and 6. The Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, the king of Zobah, and David said, no way, you're going to help my enemies. I'm going to now make you my enemies. And he goes after them, two and 20,000 men. He put garrisons then in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts. Now, the gifts that these conquered tribes brought to David were then used to advance his dynasty and secure his kingdom. Everything that we do, every progress that we make, should be to secure the kingdom of God. These were essential to the survival and the success of David's quest for the glory of God. And once again, in David's strategies, we have a lesson for us as well. Once we are spared the wrath of the king of nations, once we are saved, once we become children of God, we are to bring him gifts in order to secure and advance his kingdom dynasty. And and those gifts are are of many types, as, as set forth in Corinthians chapter 12. Whatever gifts we have, whatever skills we have, whatever opportunities we have, we are to give them to the Lord for the kingdom's work, to advance his realm. And so whatever we are, whatever we have, and whatever we do or can do, we are to offer those things to the Lord in thanksgiving for his mercy and his protection, using them to advance his kingdom and his dynastic testimony in the earth. And that's what you should be teaching your children. Here, my son, is how we serve God. Here, my daughter, is how we serve God. Here is how we advance the kingdom. Here is how we sacrifice ourselves. God has given us these gifts, health and skill and knowledge and all of the wonders that he has given us. And here's what we give back to him in order for his glory, in order for his dynasty, for in order for his comprehensive dominion conquest. Christianity is not about ourselves. Christianity is about the kingdom of Christ. Because he has given us life in order to serve him. So the one third that David kept for himself were only spared for one reason. For the glory of God in service to the king. Having settled this in David's mind for the glory of God, God then twice tells us that he's repaying him for his fidelity and he's prospering him in all of his all of his deeds, all that he does. And the Lord preserved David, it says, whithersoever he went. And we see there's in here another vital lesson. Because if we do sincerely, with the proper motive, desire and then actually serve God, if we actually devote our lives for the kingdom's advancement, for the crown rights of King Jesus, he promises to prosper us in ways that we never dreamed possible. But make no mistake about it. 
That prosperity does not mean, nor should it be measured in dollars and cents. Not necessarily a monetary prosperity. Well, there may be monetary blessings. The blessings of God are far greater than gold and silver. And once, you see, the problem is, once we measure blessings by dollars and cents, we miss the entire message of the Word of God. We, we miss the entire message of what God's blessings upon us really means. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than money. The wicked have plenty of money, but they're not blessed of God. Note verse 7. Here David provides another example for us. Verse 7 and 8. And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadad Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem and from Betha and from Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took exceeding much brass. Notice he's plundering the houses. Every valuable thing that David took in his conquest from God's enemies, notice, he brings them to Jerusalem. He doesn't do what Achan did, bring them to his own tent. He brings them to Jerusalem. He gives them to God. Here it is. This is what you gave me so that I can give to you. He understood that the things that God gave him were for God. So he brings these things to Jerusalem. He dedicates these things to the Lord. And this is how our gifts are to be used for the city of God, for the church of Jesus Christ, the people of his promise. You see, the more stable a community is, as far as a church is concerned, the more stable a community that a church is, the more protected it is, the more it will prosper as a visible church. A congregation is never to be compartmentalized. It's to be unified because that's where the power is. That's why it's important to recognize that David is only able to accomplish this once Israel was unified as the 12 tribes. What does unification mean? Well, a unified congregation must be unified in both doctrine and practice theologically on both an individual level and as a community of believers working together to advance the footprint of Christ's kingdom on the earth in their community. So what does that look like? Not only what does that look like, how is that to be achieved? Well, involvement first and foremost in church life is what community is all about in addition to Sunday worship. A unified congregation is a community of saints working together in harmony for the body of Christ. Now, during the days of the Puritans, the development of a Christian community was absolutely essential. They understood that if they did not unify as a people, as a community, they would be destroyed. Everything revolved for the Puritans around church life. The church folk lived in close proximity to one another. And if they did not, they made it a point to be involved nevertheless. Family life was intimately interwoven with the life of the church. It wasn't, well, my family does this, and then on Sunday I go to church and I do that. That's compartmentalization. Everything was involved in the church. Everything revolved around the church. The church was their touchstone. It was their community. It was their protection. It was their security. It was their life's purpose to be involved in their church, to be unified as Israel was unified so they could go out into the world and take possession. But that's not really how it is today, is it? It seems as if too many Christian families use the church community as an appendage rather than a focal point. And yet the Lord describes the faithful church as a city, a polis, 
a religious and a political entity to be involved in the things of the world together as a unified body. The answer to the establishment of a godly social order is the vibrant, conspicuous, and active ecclesiastical community. Working as one. And that, and only that, is what changes a community. So if you are not involved in community issues in the life of the church, you have no business complaining about the mess that we're in. Christians will either have a city on a hill mentality or they will have a ghetto mentality. They will either be an active part of church life and the community or they will be absent. My dear friend Martin Silbretti observes this. He says, The concept of the city itself has suffered decay under humanism whereby the city has become a rapidly imploding realm. The ties that bind are tattered nearly beyond compare. R.J. Rushdie comments on what a city should be. Notice what he says. The city is intended to represent community and a common life and refuge. The two basic aspects, thus, of a city are, one, a common faith, two, a common defense. But today, the city has no common faith, and it is a place of increasing lawlessness and terror. Somehow, the city has failed to be a city. Instead of walling out the enemy, it has walled in the enemy. End quote. Now, while this is true of cities in general, it can also be applied to the city of God. Whenever an individual or a family divorces himself from the community of the church, they are holding to a philosophy of human autonomy, which is a branch of Marxism. If you get rid of Marxism from the philosophy of human autonomy, you have another problem just as dangerous, and that's called modernism. The modern church folk goes to church on Sunday, and then you never see them. When you blend human autonomy with modernism and traditionalism and then inject those philosophies into Christianity, you have what I call familial isolationism. Everybody is their own island. This family, that family, that family, this family, that family, other family. There's no unity. It's like the tribes of Israel. They're all over the place. Familial isolationism. And this is where the Christian family sees itself as a separate unit apart from the community of the church on a day-to-day basis, only to be united on the Lord's Day in order to fulfill their obligation of worship. And I can tell you this. This is not what Jesus meant when he said that we are one body or when he said that we're a city upon a hill and we're not to have our lights be under a bushel, but put upon a candlestick so that it's shown through all the house and in all the communities. You see, there is to be an interdependence and a complementary relationship among the saints of God and their families. Every, everyone should be asking this question. What does his or her part in the life of the church look like? What does is, what is my life in the community of the Church of Jesus Christ look like? And it's an evangelistic mission. What's my evangelistic mission to the community around us? That's what we should be asking ourselves. We should be asking ourselves, what can I give? Not, what can I take? What can I give? What the church should be doing is establishing Christian localities that submit to the authority of the law of God, but it begins in the church. To do that, there must be a vibrant community of believers devoted to that charge. David was building a God-glorifying city in an effort to bring all the cities to God's temple. It was a conspicuous act with much success and people were taking notice. 
People were taking notice. And this is what Isaiah saw as a result of the coming of the Christ in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days because of the church being vibrant and conspicuous and unified. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. When we are active in advancing the kingdom of God in the real world as a unified body, the Lord brings success and people take notice. Now the king of Hamath, Toi, or Toi, he takes notice of David's conquests. In verse 9 and following, when the king of Hamath heard that David had smitten all the host of Hadadezer, then he sent Joram his son unto the king to salute him and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and smitten him for Hadadezer had wars with Toi and Joram brought with him vessels of silver and vessels of gold and vessels of brass. Again, he's bringing gifts. You see, David's Work was evident to everyone. His conquests, people were taking notice of them. He actually accomplished something tangible. He accomplished something notable. That accomplishment could be measured. He conquered this area, that area, the other area, and that area. He had things that he could point to. I did this and I did that and I was involved in this and it was all for the kingdom of God. It was all for the city of God, the New Jerusalem. And people took notice. He didn't talk about advancing the kingdom. You know, a lot of people talk about advancing the kingdom. Oh, you could talk about that till the cows come home. David actually did something about advancing the kingdom. He actually did something to advance the kingdom of God and the crown rights of King Jesus. And we need to ask what conquest have we achieved that we might have people take notice of as a unified body. Remember, Israel got the glory. Not just David, even though he was the leader. Israel was getting the glory. We need to ask what conquest have we achieved as an act of thanksgiving, devotion, and solidarity for defeating the enemies of Toi. The king then sends gifts to David by the hand of his son Joram. Now, One might say, well, why didn't he go himself? Well, no, that's not the case. You see, sending the son of a king was a sign of fidelity. It was as the king himself. Just like when God the Father sends his son, Jesus Christ, it's as if God himself, because it is God himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the king sends Joram, his son, as a sign of fidelity, not an indication that David was not worthy of the king himself, but the fact that David was worthy of the king. He could have simply sent a messenger. But instead, he sends his son. That was an act of respect in the same way that God sends his son to us to reconcile us to himself. Now, upon receiving the gifts, David wastes no time in dedicating them to the temple of God. And I just love that. That's his whole mindset. Which also, King David did dedicate unto the Lord, as soon as he got the gifts from the king, with silver and the gold that had dedicated, everything goes into the temple. David's exploits accomplished a very important result. His exploits got him a name to be reckoned with. No one wanted to mess with David because David was the tip of the spear for the glory of God. At this point, because he was now a force to be reckoned with, no one could doubt it. 
and in his boldness and in his passion and that's what's lacking in the church today. We don't pursue God. We're just following Jesus. There's a difference. We have to have a hot pursuit upon the things of Christ and we should take no prisoners. And when they speak not according to this word, it means one thing, that there is no light in them. Isaiah chapter 8. So in his boldness and his passion for the city of God, David accomplishes great things for the glory of God. David steps out in faith to do what Saul was unable and unwilling to do. He conquers the entire known world and subjects it to the majesty of God and the justice of his law. Observe verse 13. And David got him a name when he returned from smiting of the Syrians in the Valley of Salt, being 18,000 men. But conquest was not enough for the king of Israel. You would think, he's conquered everybody. Isn't this great? David's great. Wasn't enough. Because what we're dealing with with David is a military strategist which understood that simple conquests are not enough. There must be the maintenance of that conquest. In his extreme military cunning, David secures his position as king over his enemies by placing a garrison in Edom, making them his... He was monitoring the situation. He was occupying a place where his enemies used to occupy. This was a stunning move. Notice verse 14, and he put garrisons in Edom. He put military garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all they of Edom became David's servants and the Lord preserved David with us wherever he went. And herein is another lesson. In order to retain control over God's world, we must have our people everywhere in every area of civilization and in every institution. We cannot just conquer and then leave. We have to conquer and then occupy. We must have a a team of godly men Men of faith and courage, active in the world's institutions as dominion men and women. You see, David's garrisons were to be stationary pillars to ensure compliance to the law of God and the honor of the king. And that's what we are. We are the garrisons of God. The church of Jesus Christ is the army of God. It's where you're trained to go out there and make a difference and to use the church of Jesus Christ as a hammer unified in the community as the voice of God. We are the military pillars of truth. The military pillars of righteousness are set forth throughout worldly Edom so that all the world bows to the majesty of Christ, offering Him their sincere service. You know, I'm sick and tired of hearing people say, well, we're just sheep. Well, I hope that you're a sheep because... I certainly don't want to be a sheep because there are too many wolves out there. I want to be a lion. That's the only thing that's going to deal with the wolves. We need some grit back into the church. We need some real passion, pursuing the things of God, pursuing the things of God for our children, for our grandchildren, and for the generations to come. We are the garrisons of God. Now consider the end goal of David's conquest. We have to ask another question. Why did David put himself out there against some of the most fearsome nations of the world? These were the fiercest nations that the world had known. The Philistines, the the, the Moabites. And there's David, a shepherd boy. Let me put it in a more personal way. Why do we desire to engage some of the most fearsome entities 
of the secular pagan world, if, if indeed that's our desire. Well, for David, it, it, it wasn't his, for his own personal glory. For David, it was not for his own personal glory. He didn't seek military conquest so that he could tell his grandchildren what a wonderful God-fearing leader he was. That never entered into his mind. David did what he did. Didn't really matter how strong those enemies were. He did it because first of all, he knew God was with him, but he did it so that he might establish God's justice in the land. He wanted justice. Notice verse 15, And David reigned over all Israel, and David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. The one thing that mankind wants is justice. We have an acute sense of justice. We know when justice is being perverted. At least some people do. You see, David's end goal was, let's take over the nations so that we can bring God's justice to bear upon the people. Because that's the only way out of chaos, confusion, and the wrath of God. So David's goal was to establish justice for his people so that they would never again be subjected to wickedness or wicked king or wicked nations. And he knew that only God's law could do that because God's law was the only safeguard against any kind of wickedness and any kind of tyranny. You wonder why we're in the mess we are now in America or in the world? Because God's law is no longer part of the equation. No one's talking about the law of God. They're talking about congressional legislations or or executive orders by the reprobate, but they're not talking about the law of God. David's kingdom was not only complete, but because of what he did and the extent to which he did it, his kingdom was now at rest. Now we can make some inroads. Now we can get something done. We keep wanting to get things accomplished. We keep wanting to fix things, but we keep wanting to fix them within the system that's been destroying the things of this world. So because of David's exploits, because of his fidelity to God's kingdom, now Israel and the nations surrounding them were at rest. Job was David's war chief. Jehoshaphat was tasked with keeping the king's journal of all his exploits. Zadok and Ahimelech were the priests. Seraiah was the king's private secretary. Benaiah was to take charge over the archers. In other words, he was the man who was part of the military campaign that would have those men sling stones, and that's what it means. The archers were the stone slingers. And the others were the king couriers. And David made his sons chief rulers. Now consider for a moment the structure of David's kingdom. First, David appoints a man who he could trust to map out his battle plans. Obviously, this man had to be skilled in warfare tactics or kingdom, or the kingdom would have been at risk. This war's chief was to be skilled in all types of offensive and defensive warfare. Now, of course, his choice may not have been the best choice, as we're going to see later on, but at least the man knew his skill. Okay, so now I ask you this. Who among us is skilled in offensive and defensive gospel, legal, and military tactics. Let him come forward and be counted. Let him come forward and say, Here I am, Lord. Send me. I am ready. Send me. Secondly, David appointed a recorder and a scribe to keep an accurate history of the nation. You see, David understood the importance of accurate history. 
an accurate historical account, especially the history of the wars of the Lord and how he constantly delivered his people who were faithfully contending for his kingdom. When you read the Bible, you're reading God's history. And what does God say? You're faithful, I'll destroy the enemies before you. You pursue righteousness, I'll destroy the enemies before you. The record of history of God's exploits in behalf of his people were to be used as an encouragement. It was a battle cry for the people so that they can go forth in confidence into battle knowing that God would fight for them. Thirdly, David also understood that without a priest in his cabinet, God would not bless the efforts. And so as counselors to the king, David appoints Zadok and Ahimelech so so that they would counsel him. That was the most holy position because they knew the law of God. Number four, Benaiah was to oversee the cavalry and those that would act as couriers, bringing messengers from David to his own army while on the road or other kings when when brokering a truce. And finally, David makes his sons chief rulers over the people. Now, that may not have been such a great idea, as we're going to see later on. But his heart was in the right place. While the other posts were filled by men who most probably had certain credentials for the position that they held, there's no mention of David's sons having any skills other than the fact that they were his sons. And that could be a problem because cronyism is always a problem. It's never a formula for success. Everyone must be proven to the task that they are appointed to and that proof comes with their successes. Everybody could talk a good talk. Show me your faith by your works. Now that David's house is secure, his city is at rest, and the temple of God is in full operation, David looks to show mercy to Saul's house. We shall consider that next when we continue in our exposition on the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen and amen.